Good morning, brothers. Thank you, Art. I was thinking to myself, uh, after all these years, uh, you know that um, when, the, uh, when the days, when the mornings get uh, darker and colder, you can really tell who the Amen Marines are. They're going to show up. Uh, thins out just a little, um, not to shame anybody who's not here and is listening to this right now, um, but hope to have you back uh, next week. Love to turn in, uh, have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Uh, if you didn't get the opportunity to hear Barton's message from last week, uh, maybe, you weren't, maybe you weren't able to be here last week, I really encourage you to, uh, to listen to it. It's uh, one of the better messages I've ever heard on John, uh, the first part of John chapter 4, and really appreciated the way that Barton went about that. Uh, the title was Jesus and the Religious Nobody, and he explained, I think so helpfully, um, what the Lord Jesus was intending to do there is particularly just how Christ is, is inviting to all. Uh, when you take what, he, what Barton spoke about the week before, Sandy spoke, and then you, you look at uh, what he did in John chapter 4, uh, it's a good reminder that all are welcome to the Savior. You know, I have a, a friend of mine, uh, maybe you have a friend like this too, I have a friend of mine who, uh, who always... Um, Whatever we're having a conversation, whether it's a, just a few of us or a lot of us, um, somehow he always makes it about himself, like whatever the subject is. In fact, sometimes I feel like uh, a subject's mentioned in the group, you know, we're all sitting there at lunch and a subject mentioned, I'm thinking, there's no way, there's no way he's got anything on this, right? Like there's no way. And I feel like he just goes to his file folder in his brain pulls out that, you know, pulls out that folder, and then whatever's in that folder, he just starts talking about. Doesn't matter if it actually has anything really to do with where we are in the, in the topic, but it's, it's amazing. He's, it's always like, I, I, and, um, and he is a friend. I mean, I do appreciate this person. Um, I hope you're not one of those people, but, uh, but he literally did this one time, and, and some of us have joked about it for years. This is years ago. We're, uh, we're having a conversation. Um, he said something. He pulled something out of his brain file, was talking. And then um, we kind of went off and went in a different direction with it. And his next statement about five minutes later was, well, well anyway, back to me. And, then, <laughs> and all of us looked at him like, wow, you just said that out loud. <laughs> we know you're thinking that in your head. But anyway, back to me. So now we, some of us regularly joke when we're talking. Well, anyway, back to me. Um, you know, when we look at Scripture, I feel like sometimes when we're studying God's Word, whether we're reading it devotionally or we're at a Bible study like this, there's a tendency for us to be looking at the Word and be thinking, well, anyway, back to me. Like, what does this have to do with me? Now, some of that's good. I mean, it is important. We want, we want the Lord to convict us and speak to us from His Word, and that's the, the Lord's intention. His Word never returns Void, But oftentimes the question, where do I see myself in this passage? Which again, is not, a, not necessarily a bad question. But if that's our primary question, or worse, if that's our only question, where do I see myself in this passage? Who am I in this passage? If that's, if that's where we land uh, primarily or all the time, um, 
there's a danger there. There's a very self-centeredness there. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, it has been Barton and my desire that we would, we would actually shift away from that and we would fix our eyes on Christ. And we're going we're gonna to tackle a, a, t- a ton of scripture uh, this morning. And my greatest desire is that we would keep our focus on Christ. That, that maybe, maybe at the end, maybe, maybe later on today or later on tomorrow, we would begin to think, what does this have to do with me? But I think the greatest thing that we could do this morning is think about what it means to know Christ, to see who he is, to fix our eyes on him and to understand Jesus better. And if we do that, our souls are going to be encouraged. One of the reasons we sang the song that, that, uh, that James, it's not James's fault that you didn't know the song, it's mine. Uh, I, we sang this a couple Sundays ago, and that phrase, my soul finds rest in God alone, and that he is all my delight. Um, I know that theologically, but I remember thinking, singing that a couple weeks ago and thinking, do I believe that? Am I living that? That Jesus is enough, that my delight today is just him. Or is my, and this is my temptation, is my delight in what he can give me? Again, the Lord gives great blessings and we ought to be grateful for them. But are we delighting uh, him alone? Does our soul find rest in, in Christ alone? So as we go into these, these verses, let's, let's make that our focus. Let's not, let's, let's resist the temptation to go, well, anyway, back to me. And instead say, let's just look at Christ. What can I know more about Jesus uh, this morning? Because of all the verses that we have here, I thought it would be best and maybe most helpful to, uh, to read the verses as we go through it. So re- I'm going to read the, the part of scripture that has to do with point number one, uh, the unlimited power of Christ, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. So Beginning uh, John chapter 4, beginning at verse 46. And so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, where there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders... You will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them what hour, the hour when he began to get better. And they said to the official, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to them, had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In this moment of this, this picture of John is giving us of Jesus. Remember, the goal of John is that we might see Jesus who he is, that we might believe that he's the son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. John will say that at the very end of the gospel, making it very clear what, what he is about. And as we see this picture that, Jesus, uh, that, that John has given us, we see many things, but one of the things we see for sure is the unlimited power that Christ has. 
There are no limits. There's no boundaries through which the power of God in Christ cannot, uh, cannot surpass, cannot break through. And the two things that, we, that I want us to see this morning uh, in this passage is, first of all, our weakness compare, and then secondly, Christ's sufficiency. So for us to compare those things and see the difference. Because again, Christ, Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God, right? He, he, was, not, he was not just a spirit in a human body, um, but he, he knew what it was like to be us, and yet he didn't lose any of his deity. So here he is looking into the eyes of humans, God himself, and he understands our weakness. Do we understand our weakness? I really admire this, this official. You think about it. Um, this official was someone who had authority in his, in his culture, in his society. He was someone who was respected. He was someone who was accomplished. He was someone who was most likely very smart. He was someone who was most likely uh, very wealthy or wealthy enough that he had servants. He was someone who was used to giving orders and those orders were carried out. Um, he was not someone who had to... Uh, respond with humility very often. It wasn't necessary in what he had going on. He was a strong person. And I love the fact, I admire the fact that this official chose to be honest about his limitations. And not only did he, did he anguish over the, the, what he couldn't do for his son, but he actually goes to Jesus. And at this point, he doesn't know. All he knows is that Jesus performs miracles. He doesn't know that Jesus is the Son of God. He just goes and says, can you help me? Can you help me? You know, that's probably one of the, the, the biggest affronts, the biggest obstacles for why wealthy, accomplished people throughout history and throughout the world often don't come to Christ because they see themselves as self-sufficient because the thought of having to, to, uh, to bow in, in, in submission, to say, I've got nothing to really offer. I, I need you, Jesus. I've got nothing is really hard to do when you're accomplished, when you have resources. It's often easier for, and throughout the history of the world, for those who are poor recognizing their plight to go, oh, I need you, Lord. You, you can give me what I, what I clearly don't have. But again, throughout history in different parts of the world, those who are wealthy, those who are accomplished, those who have resources, often find it extremely difficult to kneel, to say, I've got nothing, Lord, please help me. Isn't it interesting when Jesus responds and he says, so, you know, unless you see signs, you're, you're, you're not going to believe. And the man just says, sir, come down before my child dies. And brothers, that's the only way to come to Christ. The only way to come to Christ is to come to Christ empty-handed. Not coming with your resources and saying, Lord, I, I think I can help you out. I think I can help the kingdom of God out a little bit. I've got some, I've got some leadership skills. I've got some teaching skills. I've got some resources. I think I can help... Oh, help me. Our weakness. Then Christ's sufficiency. This is where we see this power, a moment of power without limits. Christ just spoke a word. He just speaks. And he can take care of anything in this world 
that he wants done. Anything. Instantly the son is healed. Instantly those things change. And not only that, notice that that the greater miracle is that he brings this official and all his household to belief. So yeah, instantly the power of Christ is displayed in the physical healing of this man. But the greater miracle in that moment is that Christ brings spiritual healing to the official and his entire household. That's the real power. The real power. I remember years ago, I think we talked about this when we were going um, through our study on prayer. Um, A pastor, an older pastor who uh, was a mentor for me, um, speaking about the Battle of Jericho and in, in, uh, in Joshua, those uh, early chapters, and he said, "What was the Todd? What's the miracle of Jericho?" And I'm, I knew I knew that I knew it was a trick question. And I wanted to say when the walls fell down, but I knew that was, that was too obvious. I didn't answer fast enough. And he says, "You were going to say when the walls fell down." I said, "No, <laughs> maybe." He said, no, that's a, small, that's a small thing for God. The real miracle was getting Joshua to fall down the night before on his knees. That's the miracle. The unlimited power of our Savior. The second thing we're going to see this morning is this unbounded love. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, bind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That probably means his entire life. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. You see, the thing was that if you get into the pool first, you could be healed. And this man couldn't get, ever get there fast enough. 38 years, he couldn't get there fast enough. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, down, going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. What a dilemma for this guy, right? (laughs) He said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Lots of things to see here, but the thing I want to see this morning is the unbounded love 
of Christ, the, the, the love that has no boundaries. You see, first of all, that Christ healing our brokenness. So it's the Sabbath, and it's a festival, and Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and where does he go? The natural place to go would have been the temple. But instead, Jesus goes to this pool at Bethesda. Instead, Jesus goes to the place where there's brokenness, where there's lame, where there's sick, the invalids. That's when Jesus gets there, that's where he heads. That's where he makes a beeline to. Wow. The unbelievable compassion of Christ. Not embracing his power, not walking into the temple as the miracle worker, but instead going to those who were marginalized by society, who, who were people that, that nobody would want to be around. And this is what Barton pointed out. Christ, in his unbounded love, has great love for someone like Nicodemus, the powerful, the educated, the wealthy. He loves him. And he brings the truth to Nicodemus. And clearly, we'll see, he brings salvation to Nicodemus. But then he also goes to the Samaritan woman. Speak, speaks to the one that nobody, that, that all the religious people, even Nicodemus, maybe after he was saved, and we certainly we see that with Peter and Paul sometimes, little hesitancy until they are prompted by the Holy Spirit. No, you need to go. You need to go to these places, but not Christ. Our Savior goes to those places. And sure, he dealt with the, the physical problems of this man, but he also dealt with his shame. That's what really what was at stake there. Yeah, there was a there was a, there was a physical problem of, of of being paralyzed of and not being able to walk. But to have been at that pool for 38 years his entire life, what kind of shame did he bear in that culture to be that broken, to be that useless to humanity, according to the culture around him. And yet that's where Jesus goes. He goes right to that place. He finds that man. He has compassion on him. And he deals with his physical problems, but he also deals with his shame because in healing him and giving him the dignity to walk, dealt with his shame. What an amazing Savior that comes to us in our brokenness. I know there's that all of us in here have things that maybe only a few people knew. No. Places of darkness that you've been, places of failure, places of weakness that maybe only a few people know. And hasn't it been wonderful that Christ has met you in that place? I've shared with you my testimony before of how Christ met me in a, in a bulimia addiction, in, a, in something that I was so ashamed of, lied about, Felt completely defeated in. Felt embarrassed by. Embarrassed that I couldn't deal with it. And that the Lord would come in his compassion, his unbounded love, and meet us in those places. What a, what a Savior. But isn't it great too, not only does the Lord Jesus in his unbounded love come to us in our brokenness and heal our brokenness, but he confronts us in our sin. It is true that the Lord, the Lord comes after us 
as we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He comes to us. We don't clean up to come to Christ. No, he finds us in places like the pool of Bethesda. In our, in our, in our shame, in our brokenness. He finds us there. He comes to us there. And receives us, but doesn't leave us that way. He, he does accept us in our sinfulness, but he doesn't leave us in our sinfulness. Instead, he confronts the sinfulness that he sees there. Certainly he does that, does that with this, uh, with this uh, paralyzed man because he, he sees him in the temple and he says, sin no more. Make sure that you're now walking in obedience because of what has been given to you. Now walk in that reality. And this is love. That's great love to, to, for Christ to do that, to deal with our, our sinfulness, to confront our sinfulness. But he's also, he also has some things to say to these Jewish leaders. And you see their sin pointed out here by Christ. Christ is the, the dividing line here. <laughs> and you see him confronting, first of all, the self-centeredness of our humanity. Notice that as they question this man, it's all about them. It's nothing about Christ. It's all about what they think should happen. It's all about how they see the world. I mean, what a, what, a, what a silly question to this guy who's lame or silly command. Why, why are you doing this? Why are you walking around with this? You're mad. It's a Sabbath. Totally missing the part that this guy's been healed. Again, that's the, that's the anyway, back to me, right? There's just a, there's a, there's just our world, our tendency, our bent is to make it all about us. In a conversation around a lunch table. To be thinking, not thinking, gosh, how can I care for this other person? How can I give myself? To instead of be thinking, I wonder how they see me at this table. I wonder if I'm doing this too much or I'm doing this too little. I wonder, I wonder how they felt about that. I wonder about me and this. And again, it's just this, this self-centeredness. And in his unbounded love, Christ confronts our self-centeredness. He also confronts our self-righteousness. This is a recurring issue with these Pharisees. They're always concerned about the external rules. I think all of us struggle with self-centeredness and self-righteousness, all of us. But I do think that some of us struggle with one a little bit more than the other. I do think that some of us in here, our self-centeredness is like, yeah, that I am, man, I'm always trying to protect me. And I'm always thinking about me. Some of us in here are like, yeah, I just wish that the things I did right were counted <laughs> for something, right? Like we're, we're, we're really trying to earn righteousness, you know, and it frustrates us, doesn't it? Those, those of us who struggle with that, it frustrates us when we see someone else not really obeying the rules and life's going okay for them or somehow they're experiencing God's love and they're not really obeying the rules, these Pharisees, they are all about the external religion, religious practices. And again, it wasn't, that, it wasn't that Jesus didn't think that the external expression of his law was important. That's not true. It's just that the external expression without an inward transformation, he says later, you Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. You look all great on the outside, but you're completely dead inside. 
Jesus goes after internal transformation, and that's love, brothers. That is unbounded love. See, I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to just, I don't want to just clean up your actions. I want to give you a new heart. Remember that that story from my professor at at Covenant College, my Bible professor? Dr. K, Dr. Krabendam with the Dutch, the Dutch man, the seven-foot-tall Dutchman. When he would say, you tell the little children, give Jesus your heart. Give Jesus your heart. And I say, yes, tell the little children, give Jesus your heart. So he can crush it. (laughs) And give you a new heart. There's There's nothing valuable in our hearts to give to Jesus. What we need to do is give Jesus our hard hearts. So he can, as it says in Ezekiel, give us a new heart. Inward transformation. And that's the love of a Savior who's come not to clean up the outside, but to transform the inside. The unbounded love of Christ. That is how he comes to us, brothers. Next thing we see here, we're going to see the unequivocal claim of Christ. But I want you to just declare this big problem now. And you see it there in verses uh, uh, 16 through 18. You see, at first they were upset at Jesus. They started persecuting Jesus because they thought he was a teacher who was breaking the Sabbath. And so they they said, this guy is a bad teacher because he's breaking the Sabbath. And so they were against him for that. But then Jesus says, my father, God, is working to now and I'm working. It switches from persecution to now they want to kill him. And I think sometimes we get confused. We think that, that the Pharisees... Uh, saw Jesus as saying he was uh, um, a God's son as if he were, you know, he were uh, God himself. The Pharisees actually missed that. What the Pharisees thought Jesus was saying is that Jesus was saying that he is a God equal with God, with Yahweh. That's what they thought. They thought he was saying he was a parallel God equal with him. And Jesus is going to make it clear, no, it's much worse than that. (laughs) I'm not saying that I'm a parallel God equal with Yahweh. But that's why they wanted to kill him. And that, that makes sense, right? It's we don't, they missed it because it was actually the son of God, Jesus Christ. But if that's what's going through their heads, this guy's put himself up as a God equal with Yahweh. We've got to kill him. That at least makes sense from their worldview. So then we go to this. So that's why Jesus says what he says in verses 19 and following. Let's read that. Let's read uh, verse 19 through 29. So in this context, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel For as the Father raises from the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly I say to you, 
An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. And as he has given him authority, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to resurrection of judgment. Jesus Christ doubles down on this. He says, you think that I'm putting myself as a God up equal with Yahweh. I'm not saying that. I'm going to make this clear for you right now. I'm not a God equal with Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I'm telling you, I am God himself. And I love the way D.A. Carson, so I, I, I took it from him, put it in your notes, the way D.A. Carson frames up this passage. By the way, if you want to, I think the very best commentary, though it's, though it's big and it's detailed, on the Gospel of John is from, from Don Carson, from D.A. Carson. And he frames up this passage through the literary devices that are used by here, John, these four fours that begin with the word F-O-R, because it frames up what Jesus is saying. First of all, verse 19, for whatever... For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. This sounds like it's saying that Christ is, is uh, subordinate, maybe in substance, right? Like that somehow there's the Father is great and the Son is less. It does speak of subordination, that we see that throughout Scripture. Christ says, I've come to do the will of my Father to obey my Father, he says in, 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 in the Garden of Gethsemane, not, your, not my will, but your will. So there is subordination, but the subordination of Christ is not of substance, but of function. He's not saying, I'm a lesser part of God. He's just saying, as we try to understand the Trinity, that there's not a, there's not a subordination of substance here. There's a subordination of function here that I have that, that role. And again, this would have made a lot more sense in that culture than it does in ours because up until about, I don't know, maybe early 1900s, um, most men went into the very business that their father did. Most men before the 19, early 1900s did not chart a different career path than whatever their dad did. So whatever your dad was in the you know, 1850s, if he was a farmer, you became a farmer. If he was a metal worker, you became a metal worker. If he was a lawyer, you probably went and became a lawyer. You just went into the family business. That was, that was the norm. And out of that, there was a sense of reputation that you were afforded because your father had been a good metal worker. Your father was a, was a, was a, a faithful farmer. Your father um, was a good lawyer. And so... Seeing you come along as the apprentice, you into your father's business, uh, you got credit. You got credit for your dad's faithfulness, your dad's hard work, your dad's success, because they considered you to be a part of. That's the way their brains work. That's the way they would have understood what Jesus was saying. A little bit different for us because we don't we don't have that same thing going on in our culture right now. But that's what Jesus was saying. I'm in my father's business. So you respect what my father has done, Yahweh? I'm telling you, I'm in that business. I'm his son. I'm equal with him. 
You can trust me because it's built on the reputation of Yahweh. Then he goes on, verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This word loves there in the Greek is in a Greek tense that means this. Jesus is saying, God the Father, Yahweh, has always loved me throughout all of eternity. Before time began, he's loved me. He loves me right now, and he will love me forever. And again, we don't have an English word to translate that, but that's, that's what's being said here. He's saying, I have always been loved with the Father. I will always be loved by the Father. And this is key. We've talked about this before, and I want this to encourage us. We do have a tendency, even in our salvation, uh, to make it about us, right? Jesus died on a cross because he loved me. That is true. But that's not the primary reason that Jesus died on a cross. The primary reason that Jesus died on a cross was because he loved the Father. For the glory of the Father. That's the primary reason. In fact, the reason that that Jesus loves us is because of the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. Because of the love that exists between the Father and the Son, because of that, we are loved. Now I know, especially, especially as, you know, 21st century Americans, uh, you know, our individual thought and all that, it's, it's hard for us to, like, feel good about that, right? Like, it feels better to go, no, no, no. Jesus went to the cross because he loved me. Like, that's where I want to, I just want to stay there. That's good. Again, it's not untrue. That is true. But do you understand how much more secure it is to know that your salvation, my salvation is based on this eternal love that the Father and the Son have for each other? Man, that is secure. That is sure. (laughs) My salvation, your salvation is based on, On this eternal love shared by the Father and the Son. So when Satan comes to accuse and attack, how could Jesus love you? How could Jesus love you? How could you? You can say, well, Satan, because God's word says that he does, but I got something better (laughs) because of the eternal love that exists between the Father and the Son. I am saved, I have salvation. That's important. Verse 21. Ooh, look at that time. We got to get out of here soon. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This phrase, this four, really frames up verses 21 through 24. The Pharisees already believed that God raised people from the dead. They already knew that. Yahweh, God, the Father, raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is saying, I do too. In fact, he's saying the judgment, the final judgment, God has given to me. I'm the one who can can bring the final judgment. So I raise from the dead. I'm bringing the final judgment. Jesus is the dividing line of all of humanity. All of it. The end of the day, the question is not, what have you and I done for God? The question is, what have you and I done with Jesus? That's the question for all of humanity. Not what have you and I done for the Lord, but what have we done with Jesus himself? And that's what he's saying to these Pharisees. Listen, I 
<laughs> I've been given the role of judgment. And then verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. This is now, this now frames up verses 25 through 29, this, this four in verse 26. And notice that he goes from calling himself the son of God, son of God, son of God. And now he says son of man. He points out his humanity. And what Jesus is saying here is that he, being the one who knows what it's like to be us, is in a unique position to judge all of humanity. Because he knows what it's like to be us, to be tempted in every way, as it says in Hebrew, and yet without sin. And so the one who is exactly like us, who is united to us in the flesh, who has lived this life that we have lived, been tempted in every way that we've been tempted, he is uniquely qualified among everything in the universe to stand as judge of humanity because he was perfect, because he was sinless, because he is God, and yet he is man. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, I'm that one. I'm that one. So Jesus makes it clear. <laughs> this is an unequivocal claim. And anybody who tries to think of Jesus as a great teacher, uh, think of his teachings of being good, thinking of him as being a great man, thinking of it as a great idea, Jesus Christ is a, is a great religious idea, all that, that's baloney. In fact, it's not just baloney, it, it's, it, it's, you're in danger of hell. He, he, Jesus Christ, is the dividing line of all humanity. And Christ himself has made it clear. What John has said here are the very words of Jesus, this is who I am. This is who I am. And then he goes on finally to this undeniable testimony because he says, okay, here's my claim. Now, the last part, verse 30, chapter five. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek it not on my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's just saying that's the way, the, that's the way law and testimony worked. In, in that culture, and almost in every culture. It can't just be the one person saying, well, I didn't do it. <laughs> so Jesus, his testimony does work, but in their culture, there had to be more than one. That's what he's saying there. So now pick up on verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you'll have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and yet do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you, not, how will you believe my words? Here we have this undeniable testimony. I'll go quickly for us. Uh, Christ gives out four witnesses here. Four witnesses. So he says, hey, I know my testimony isn't good enough in your culture to verify the claim I just made, but let me give me these four testimonies. The first is this, the father. When he says in verse 32, another, he's not talking about John. He's talking about his heavenly father. So verse 32, verse 37 and 38, my father gives testimony about me. Some of you would say, well, isn't that a circular argument? (laughs) Isn't that just a circle? I am God. And God tells God has verified that I'm God. Yes. Yes, it is. It is. But logically, it has to be. Right? The only way you can have testimony about God is from God himself, because there's nothing greater than God. Now, there is, there is evidence, and even here, Christ uses as a witness, a human witness, but he's making the point that, is, that it's essential to have. So when I have my friends who, who are atheists or agnostics or searching and all that, and they get, for, why can't you give me this outside evidence? Why can't I understand everything about God? Why doesn't this make sense? I'm like, let's just think logically for a second. He's God. We're not. <laughs> there would have to be things we can't understand. If we could totally understand God, he's no longer God. He's just a God we made up. And who could possibly verify God except God himself? The only verification would have to be something greater. And there is nothing greater. Now, there's great arguments, and we don't have time this morning, but you know, there's great philosophical arguments, the, the ontological argument, well, that's the most complicated of them, the cosmological argument that has to do with there has to be a first mover, a prime mover. So what is that prime mover? The teleological argument the philosophical argument, you know, look at, you look at the beauty and the order and the framing of the world. There has, to be, there has to be someone who's framing it up. There has to be a designer. Um, uh, the moral argument, you know, when, when, when President Biden rightly says that Hamas is pure evil and what they have done is pure evil. That's correct. But I'd love to be with him and say, how did you decide that? <laughs> Where does that determination of what's right and wrong come from? That's the the moral argument. And all those are there, but ultimately has to come from God. And as we see in our Gospels, at Jesus' baptism, God spoke. You can look in your Gospels under Jesus' baptism. God spoke. This is my son. This is my son in whom I am pleased. So Jesus says, the Father has given testimony about me. He also says, listen, you want some human testimony? Well, John the Baptist has given testimony. In fact, Jesus says, you guys went to him. And we we studied that a few weeks ago. And Jesus says, hey, you went to John and you asked John. And what did John tell you? (laughs) John said, I'm not the Christ. You asked him if he was. He said he wasn't, but then he told you about me. That's the second witness. The third witness the miraculous works that I've done. And he's already done these, right? The, the miracle at the wedding of Cana, the, the, the official's son, uh, the paralytic at Bethesda. He'll do more. These are miraculous works. They're seeing them. These miracles actually happen. And then, of course, there's the resurrection. 
By the way, it's always, it's always interesting to me when, uh, when a friend of mine uh, wants to argue against the, uh, the, the miracles of Christ, argue that, well, you know, there's all those miracles about this and that, and I'm like, hey, let's skip that. Can we just go to the resurrection? Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And a lot of times they might say yes. I'm like, well, <laughs> then isn't this paralytic healing thing a little easier? <laughs> Seems like if you can raise from the dead, you could probably heal somebody who's a paralytic. Like, let's, let's just think about this in a, in a thoughtful, logical way. The works of Christ, ultimately the resurrection of Christ, are third witness. And then the fourth witness is the Old Testament scriptures. And we've seen this when we went through Exodus. You just see Christ over and over again. Job, Job, in the middle of Job. Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth and I will yet see him. He testifies about the Psalms. We see that full of Jesus Christ. The Minor Prophets, if you're a member of Second Sunday morning, been going through the Minor Prophets. Isn't it fascinating? We're seeing Jesus everywhere in the Minor Prophets. What Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you study the Old Testament, the Scriptures. That are their Scriptures. I'm there. They give testimony about me. Those are the four witnesses. There's one accuser. What does Jesus say? There is one accuser against you, and this is the accuser, Moses himself, the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses wrote about me, he said. So the Pharisees have accused Jesus. Now Jesus turns and accuses them. You don't believe. And brothers, unbelief is a sin. To not believe in Christ's Son is a sin. And we see here clearly in these verses that the glory and the hope of these Pharisees is in something else. Jesus points that out. You're glorying in one another. You have hope in Moses. You're missing it. You're completely missing it. I know many of you, like me, are praying for this country. It's heavy on our hearts. We're praying for Memphis. We're praying for Ukraine. We're praying for Israel. We're praying against the the evil of Hamas and justice. We're praying for Palestinians who may not have any connection to Hamas at all who are suffering. We're praying for all of this. What's needed most? What's needed most in each of these places? Is it leadership in America and Memphis? Is that what we need most? Is it resources? Is it solutions in Israel and and Gaza? Is it peace? The law enforcement in Memphis? No. You know what's needed most, brothers? What's needed most is for men to believe in Christ, the Christ that we see here. It's for men and women to, to hear and believe, to see Jesus, to believe the claim, the testimony of Christ to experience the unbounded love and the unlimited power of Christ. That is what's needed most. When we pray, let's pray that. And where does that need to start? It needs to start in this room, brothers. If there's any unbelief in this room, it needs to start with us. 
pray that we would believe and have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the beauty and the truth of your word. Lord, we've tackled so much this morning. There's so much here. And I just pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would take what is important and true and right in the word that we have studied and you would seal those things to our hearts. You would take whatever else is unhelpful and have us forget it. Lord, we want to see you. We want to know you. We don't want to make it about us. Help us, Father, to find you today as our delight and our reward. That our soul would find rest in you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks, brother.